morning. So maybe you're not in the happiest place on earth today, but uh, hopefully we'll uh, get, get some of what we've been praying for as we were singing that song, Break Thou the Bread of Life. It uh, made me think of the passage we have today. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, sometimes it seems we have to work harder to really break open the bread of life. That is, the Word of God, really understand what it's saying. Ephesians is certainly one of these books that's very dense with, with truth, uh, which is one of the reasons we've been advancing at a patient pace. Today we'll take a larger chunk than usual. Uh, Don started us on uh, the passage, really, when he read in chapter 2, verse 11. I'll just start with uh, those three verses. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. And as Don pointed out, this passage deals with the unity in the church, and uh, particularly the unity that should exist between Jew and Gentile in the church. And I was thinking before we jump into that passage, it may be uh, good to take a step back and just understand how important this unity is to God. Uh, if we would look perhaps to the left side of, the, uh, of your Bible in Ephesians chapter 1, we have in verses, uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 9, it says there that Jesus, uh, having made known to us the mystery of his will, and by the way, the word mystery in the Bible, and especially here in Ephesians, uh, talks about a hidden truth, something that was not previously known. And in particular, especially in the book of Ephesians, it's talking about the church. The fact that the church, this body of believers, uh, previously Jew and previously Gentile, but now Christians in Christ, was not known beforehand. You'll have a really hard time finding it in the Old Testament. But now it's being made revealed. So it's this mystery, in verse 9, mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. The main words I want you to focus on is the fact that it's in the dispensation of the fullness of the times. As God is viewing all of time of creation, he's, he's not stuck in a, in a single point in time like you and me are. He's looking at the whole thing from beginning to end. And it's in this view of that that he's thinking of the church and gathering together in one. So the unity of the church is something God thought about from the beginning of the ages. Really, not the beginning of the ages, but standing outside of time, looking at all of the extent of creation from the past to the future. He's thinking about the unity of the church. <clears throat> Go ahead and flip with me to the other side of chapter 2, chapter 3 in Ephesians. And I apologize ahead of time to the preacher 
of uh, next week's message. I'll be stealing just a little bit of his passage. In verse, uh, starting in verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, this is Paul speaking. Let me go ahead and back up to verse 8, just to, to get the context. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul is talking about himself, the grace that God gave to him, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The fact that he's getting to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul can't get over that privilege. And to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Again, the mystery here stands for the church. The fellowship of the mystery, this unity of Jew and Gentile. He wants, God has given him the special grace of revealing this unity of Jew and Gentile in the church which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. So again, it's talking about from the beginning of the ages. This is a big plan God had from the beginning. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. You get a sense of how big of a thing this is. God is revealing his wisdom, not just here on earth, but in heaven above, by the church, by the unity that is in the church. So we're talking about something that's a really big deal. Okay, with that we'll go ahead and turn to our passage that we have today, and we'll start in verse 14, we'll read halfway through, talk about it, and then we'll read the rest. But again here, the subject is unity, unity in the church. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We'll, we'll stop there for now because there's just a lot in there. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, we're told that he himself is our peace. Take Jesus out of the church, there will be no peace in the church. We don't have peace because we're a bunch of nice guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have peace because Christ is here. Now we'll talk about the way Christ brings peace. And uh, it'll divide in, into three major categories, as I have it. Of course, another preacher will come up with different set of categories. But as I see it, first of all, of all, he takes away our differences. That's important, right? You want to have peace? He takes away our differences. Second is he treats us all with equal love. And the third is he gives us many things in common. Okay, a good recipe for peace. He takes away our differences. He treats us all with equal love, 
and he gives us many things in common. So the first one, he takes away our differences, and we have that for us especially in verses 14 and 15. It says, For himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us. I don't know if we can get up the picture of uh, the Berlin Wall. Is that over there? All right, there it is. <clears throat> so for those of you who are not familiar with history, uh, in World War II, uh, Germany was divided in half. Half went to the Soviets, or Russia, and the other half was controlled by the Western nations. And um, they both basically gave Germany their independence, but what it resulted is, in, is really two German countries. There was Eastern Germany that was kind of following the dictates of the Soviet bloc, and there was Western Germany that, if you would, was following the forms of the West, democracy and development. And uh, what was happening is people in the East wanted to go to the West. Conditions were better in the West. And so uh, the authorities in East Germany decided that the solution is to build a wall. They built a great big wall, and you see a picture of it there. And uh, it's not, you don't see it there, but there's like, maybe you can kind of see it. There's a guard booth. There's actually a soldier over there. And they would shoot people who tried to cross. So in the 10 or, or so years before the wall was built, about 3.5 million Eastern Germans moved to the West. And uh, the 30 or so years that followed before the wall was torn down, uh, about 5,000 tried. 600 of them died, attempted it. So this was a serious war that stopped people from going over. Now, in 1990, as I was in high school, dating myself, uh, the news started coming out that the two German nations were going to unify. They were now going to become one. And that's great. We're happy about that. Now, imagine that they would have left that wall there. Let's say East Germany and West Germany said, okay, we'll become one nation, but we'll just leave the wall there. Do you think that there would be a good relationship between people in West Berlin and East Berlin? It would be kind of hard with this wall between you, right? And so that's the first thing God has to do with Jew and Gentile. There is a wall between the Jew and the Gentile. And he describes it for us. So this is the middle wall of separation in verse 14. He explains what it is in verse 15. It says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or this wall or source of separation, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The law of commandments contained in ordinances. What he's talking about is the law that God gave Israel. Moses, uh, God through Moses gave uh, Israel a lot of laws. Uh, a lot of them concerned the sacrifice in the temple, but uh, there were different holy days they were supposed to uh, keep. There were certain foods they were not supposed to eat. And these were laws that God gave only to the nation of Israel. He didn't give it to anybody else. Now imagine you'd have the church, and now God saves Jews, and he saves Gentiles. But the Jews still have the law of God, and they have to keep it, and they keep doing things differently from the Gentiles because they got laws that the Gentiles didn't get. How much unity do you think you'll have in the body? I mean, it would be a real hamper to the unity if you had such a division within the church. And so this is the first thing we see here. God is removing that wall of separation or that law. Now, to see how he does it, we have a key word for us in verse 15. It says that he having abolished in his flesh the enmity. He did it in his flesh. Uh, 
We'll go ahead and look at Romans 7. If you want to, you can turn there, but you should have the verses. And that gives us a little bit more details as to how Jesus, in his flesh, removed this enmity or the laws that confined uh, the Jewish people and that were preventing this unity. So Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Oh, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. Paul is speaking to Jews, Jewish believers here, that the law was, has dominion over a man as long as he lives. This is the principle that's the key. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. If I come under the law of God, for how long does that law apply to me? As long as I live. Right? I can't get, get out from under that law as long as I live. And then Paul continues with an example in verse 2. For the woman who has an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if the husband dies, she is free from that law. So this is just an example. Here's another relationship, a husband and a wife. And when we get married, we say, till death do us part. Which means if one of us dies, the other person is free to marry whoever he wants to. It's a contract that ends with the death of one of its members, or one of their partners in that contract. Um, okay. The conclusion, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. And this is the key here. We become dead to the law through the body of Christ. How? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just there paying for my sins, he died in my place. And so God looks at me as a person who has already died. I died in Christ. As a result, remember, the law only applies to me as long as I'm alive. Well, now I'm dead. So yeah, I look really alive to you guys, but as far as God is concerned, I have died in Christ. The law has nothing more to say to me. Okay, my relationship with the law is over. We're divorced. Okay? That, and it gives the reason to it here, that you may be married to another. I have a new governing relationship. It's not the law, it is Christ. To him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Okay, now that, this was perhaps very sp uh, specifically aimed at the division between Jew and Gentile. Let me take you to another passage that's related to it in thought, and that applies to all of us because uh, there's a possibility of other types of division in the church, not just between Jew and Gentile. So it's good to, to eliminate all of them. This will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you may want to turn there. It's a pretty dense passage. I'm sorry, we're, we're doing some heavy lifting today. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, 
starting in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ compels us. And we'll stop there to think about it. Before, if I was a religious person, which I confess I wasn't a very religious person, I would have felt the need to do something to follow the law because of fear of judgment and what would happen to me if I do not follow it. Well, now it's the love of Christ that compels me. It's my understanding of how much he loves me that he impels me to do these things. It's no longer fear of judgment. It is love that should be the driving force for a believer. But the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, that's Jesus, right? He died for all of us. Then all died. That's the same truth we just talked about in Romans 7, the fact that we died in him. As far as God is concerned, we died. I have reached the end of my life. I died. And he died for all that those who live, so that's us, he died for me, because of that I'm still alive. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now, he's not taking away my uh, relationship to following the law. He's taking away my purpose for living. Previously, I had certain purposes. I was saved in college, and for a while in college, I was all about academics. I wanted to get A's and do well in my classes and maybe get a good job or whatever academia could give me. And then I decided, well, you know, all these people here, they're having fun, they're partying. I'm not sure I really want to just live to get A's. Maybe I want to live for fun. And I did that. I, I tried that for a year or two, just going to parties and doing what people were doing at parties. But when I got saved, it was like rebooting your computer. All of a sudden, all these purposes were just gone. All right? I, I wasn't living for academics to get A's or to get a good job or to go to party, or to have a good time. I was living for Christ. There was a new purpose to live for. And that's what it's talking about here. We should live no longer for ourselves, for these petty purposes that we had, whether it's to get an A, or get a job, or have a good time, but for him who died for them, and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And let me tell you, brother and sister in Christ, that this is the key for our unity, is the fact that we're living for him. If I live for my own purposes, after becoming a believer, I'm not going to have unity with another believer who is living for his own purposes because at one point or another, our purposes are going to clash. But if I live for him and you live for him, it's like being on the circumference of a circle and we're both heading to the middle. We're heading to the same person. That's what brings us together in unity. So if you take nothing away from this message, the key to Christian unity 
is living for Christ. It's not about being nice and saying good morning to people when they come to church, even though I really appreciate people saying good morning to me, and I, I try to do the same to them. But the key to Christian unity is living for him, not anything else. Okay. Um, so that was the first main way in which Christ brings peace, makes peace in the, in the church. He removes our differences. The second one I mentioned he, is he treats us with equal love. Uh, most of you are familiar with the story of Jacob and how he had 12 sons. And um, he had one son he loved, Joseph. And Joseph got the special treatment and got the coat of many colors. And how did the brothers respond? With love? No. It doesn't work like that. If I would pick one of my children and I would show them preferential treatment, preferential love, there's not going to be unity between my children. And uh, God takes care of that. So that's what we have in the next three verses. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. There is one way Jew and Gentile are made right in the sight of God, and that's the cross. Jesus died for all of us. That is our basis. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. We both came into the good of what Christ did by doing the same thing, believing the gospel. It says in uh, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Christ gave both the Jews and the Gentiles the same message to believe, that Jesus died for our cross, for our sins on the cross, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. It's the same gospel. We all believe it. We all enter the same way. He brought the same message to all of us. We believe God so loved the world, he sent the message of the gospel everywhere for people to believe. The same love, both Jew and Gentile. <clears throat> Verse 18. For through him... We both have access by one spirit to the Father. Uh, at my work, we have what we call an employee entrance. So us employees get to drive to the back of the building and park in this very large parking lot and walk maybe five minutes to just get to the entrance door and to get into the building. But if you're in upper management, you get to park right in front and walk right through the lobby and into the office, not equal treatment <laughs> may not help the feeling of unity in my company. Uh, but we all have access by one spirit. God gave you and me the same spirit in order to have access to the Father. So equal, equal treatment of love. Okay. Uh, let me read verses 19 through 22. And that's the rest of the passage we have for today. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, 
in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. I was at uh, having lunch with some of my co-workers uh, last week, and uh, I don't want to try to follow all the trail of that conversation because it's not that fruitful. But at some point, someone was trying to interest somebody else to listen to what their guru has to say. Uh, this was a Hindu. Uh, I think he was a Hindu. He may have been a Buddhist. Someone can correct me later. And he had a certain guru he was following, and he was trying to convince the other person that they should follow the same guru. And the argument was that his guru was teaching that people all over the world should, should desert their nationalities in order to become one and to be joined. And uh, this is not something new. This is something the world has been desiring for a long time, all the way from the Tower of Babel. There was a desire to do something that will bring all people together in peace. But the, the problem is it doesn't work. It has failed. Today we have a world where there's war everywhere, and often it's people in the same country that are killing each other. Now, yesterday I was at a park a few blocks from my house, and there was another person from the, in the park that uh, was born and grew up in Shanghai, almost the opposite sides of the world. And we started talking to each other, and we found out we were both Christian, and we had fellowship. We could share personal things with each other with perfect understanding and unity and peace. That is something that God has given us. This is this unity of the body of Christ. How does God do it? Well, he gives us a number of things in common. I said many things early on. Uh, I think I counted six, but there's probably more. But just six alone in this passage. Different ways that God draws us together. Uh, the first one, verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. What do citizens have in common? They have the same allegiance. They obey the same government or the same king. What we have in common with all believers is we all have the same king. We all do what the same person wants us to do. That draws us together. We have, we have a shared king, shared citizenship. Uh, second one, it says that we're, that we're members of the household of God. So I have a house, and in my household, there's me, there's Sharon, my wife, and we have four kids. And uh, we're trying to train our children to help with the needs of the house. So they help in emptying the dishwasher. They help in uh, folding their clothes and putting their clothes away. And uh, they may help do a little bit of cleaning around the house. And we need that help. And uh, that's what a household could, could actually include more than you, just your family, especially in the days this was written. It could include your servants or your slaves. But the idea is, you all are part of the same economical unit. You all depend upon each other. You all contribute something. Uh, when my wife is sick, or maybe one of my children is sick, and my wife has to take care of that, there's more that I have to do. And that's the way it is in the church. We all depend on one another. We are a shared resource. We are all part of the household of God. I need you to pray for me and to minister to me with whatever spiritual gifts God has given to you. And you need me, and whatever it is that God has given to me, 
to give you. We're a shared resource that ties us together. Uh, next, in verse 20 we have, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's our third bond. We have the same foundation. When I was being discipled by Rick Bellis some years ago, uh, he told me, Noad, you, you stand or fall with this book. And what he meant by that is that the Bible was my foundation for what I believed. I draw my security from the Bible. I know what it is God wants me to do from the Bible. And the same is true with every other believer. You have the same foundation that you are relying on. This ties us together. Our fourth one is we have the same cornerstone. I think we have a picture here. For those who are not familiar, a cornerstone is uh, typically the first stone. Today, we may not use cornerstones so much because we have all this lasers and equipment to kind of align things. But uh, in those days, perhaps after you did your foundation, or maybe even part of your foundation, would be this great big stone that would go in the corner of the building, and that would be the, uh, the source of alignment for the entire building. You would add stones to it uh, for, to, to align uh, one wall and another wall, and it would align how straight up the walls would be. So the cornerstone is really what tied the building together. And every stone in that building is related in some way to the cornerstone in order to be in that building. And here we're told that Christ is our cornerstone. And that's the case for you and I as Christians. We are based uh, or related to Christ. I have a relationship with Christ, and you have a relationship with Christ, and that binds us together. We're both aligned because we're both connected to Christ. He is our cornerstone. Our, our relationship with him is what defines us. Just like stones in a building. Uh, the fifth, the fifth uh, connection we have is we're all part of the same building. And this to me is one of the most amazing things in this passage. Um, it says that we're part of the same building in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And just in case you're not sure, what does it mean that I'm a holy temple in the Lord? Well, it clarifies it in the next verse. In whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. The God, the infinite God of eternity decided to make you his home. And he decided to make me his home. And because you are his home, and I am his home, we are part of the same building. We're part of the same temple. The holy God dwells in both of us. And that forms our connection. The last connection I have here is we're all going through the same growth. Now, if this doesn't apply to you and you've already stopped growing, come talk to me afterward. <laughs> but... Uh, it says here, in whom you also are being built together, I'm sorry, it says, uh, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. <clears throat> How is it that we can grow as a temple in the Lord? Is God in me or is God not in me? Well, if God is in me, I am a temple in the Lord, but God's ability of being in me is limited by the extent that I am still in me to the extent that I direct my own steps and I do what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. 
God is limited how much he can dwell within me or how much he can control me. He wants me to be completely filled with his spirit. And that means I need to take a hike and go somewhere else. So the growth process can be a, is a painful process <laughs> in which God shows me how much I really want him to be in charge rather than me to be in charge in my life. And that's something we all share. God is doing that work in me and he is doing that work in you. And so we can relate to each other, a common bond. Let me finish with uh, a prayer of the Lord Jesus found in John chapter 17. You can turn there. We'll, we'll close with that. We talked before about the importance of unity. Importance of unity in the mind of God, in unity of the church. And this is a prayer of the Lord Jesus starting... I think the prayer starts earlier on, but we're going to start in verse 20. A prayer of the Lord Jesus, he's speaking to God the Father, and we get to listen in. <clears throat> this was what was on the heart of the Lord Jesus. I do not pray for these alone, and he's talking here about the disciples. So he had the 12 disciples around him and maybe others, and he's saying, I'm not praying for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's us. Right? We believed because of the word of the apostles. That they all may be one. He wants us all to be one. How much? As you, Father, are in me and I in you. He wants us to be as close together as God the Son, and God the Father are together. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. <clears throat> Twice in this passage, the Lord Jesus gives a reason. Now, there may be multiple reasons, but one of the reasons he wants us to be united is so that the world will believe that God the Father sent the Lord Jesus. He, he, he is staking his reputation or the evidence of who he is and what he has done based on our unity. As we said earlier, this is something the world wants. The world wants this unity that they can't have. God has given us this unity that we do have. 
But the purpose, or one of the purposes, is that there will be evidence that points back to Jesus. When people see the incredible unity that believers can have, they will say, that means Jesus was sent by God. Steve Green has a song that uh, captures this thought. And I'll just close with that. He says, All believers dream of reaching the world with a message of love and grace, searching for the best way of preaching the word to rescue the human race. The answer seems too easy. It's nothing new. A simple thing any child of God can do. Love one another. Take your brother by the hand. The world will watch in wonder. Love will make them understand. Love one another, and your love will change the world. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we are amazed by the fact that you've entrusted to us this sanctified or holy responsibility of being the witness for you in this world that will point the world to you. And yet uh, we read and sought to understand from your word all the myriad ways in which you made it possible for us to be as one. And yet we realize, Lord, that to the extent that each of us would have his own way instead of Christ in their lives, we are preventing that purpose from being fulfilled. Help us, Lord, put self aside that Christ reign within that unity might reign to the glory of God the Father and to the witness and testimony of who the Lord Jesus is. For we ask it in his name. Amen.